make it normal size. Daniel chapter 2. In your Bibles, there'll be a bookmark. In Daniel, in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honour. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more they replied, Let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realise that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, There is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, Why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God for ever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed, to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, 
I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was a dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything, and as iron breaks things to pieces so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honour and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mystery, Mysteries for you were able to reveal the, this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. 
He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. Thank you, Sarah, for that. Um, a long reading. We're going to have long readings for the next few weeks. Uh, well, next week, there's, we'll um, have a little break from Daniel for a couple of weeks, but we will get through this first half of the book over the coming months, and there'll be lots of long readings. I hope you enjoy them, uh, and um, uh, especially as we're looking at them through our home groups as well through the week, really immersing ourselves in these stories. Uh, they are kind of long, but there's so much in them, and lots that God has for us. Um, uh, as, we, as we think about them. Friends, I, I'm going to pray for us again uh, before we dive into this great story. So let's pray. Uh, our great Father, um, Lord, we come here this morning with so many things in our hearts and our minds. We come with the burdens of our week. We come with the joys of our week as well. Lord, we pray, we ask, Lord, please now by your spirit, please enable us to uh, hear your word to us well, to respond properly, to... Um, Lord, Lord, we pray that you might open our eyes again and even some of us, Lord, even for the first time, please open our eyes to the incredible reality of your kingdom, uh, the great and wonderful promise that we have of your kingdom that is established in the Lord Jesus, that is firm and secure, that we know because of Jesus' death and resurrection and that we have certain hope will fill the whole earth Lord, teach us how to live in the light of that, we pray. And please comfort us where we need comforting. Please rebuke us and challenge us and prod us where we need it. And we pray all of that so that we might live for the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know what your experience of nightmares is. Uh, lots of us have different experiences of that. I remember growing up, um, some people in my family would have lots of nightmares. I always had dreams of flying around and saving the day. Occasionally the odd nightmare. Uh, but uh, uh, some people have them very frequently and they can be terrifying, right? Especially uh, as kids, especially also if you manage to have, this is when I do have most of my nightmares, when you have that mid-afternoon uh, nap in an, just a room that's just a little bit too hot. I don't know if you had this experience. You sleep a little bit too long in a room that's a little bit too hot and then the nightmares begin, right? Well, you can, you can imagine the scene for King Nebuchadnezzar, right? Uh, he, he hasn't been sleeping in the afternoon in a, in a hot room. Um, this great king of Babylon, uh, despite all his wealth and power, that's the thing about dreams, right? Uh, no matter how powerful you are, no matter how much money you've got, no matter how many people you can kind of control, uh, you can't control what happens when you go to sleep and you close your eyes. Even Nebuchadnezzar can't control his dreams. Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful guy in the world. Uh, he has set up this incredible empire. There's no one who can match him. He's this incredible, powerful emperor. But even him, he's been waking in a cold sweat. We read that um, uh, at the start of the chapter there. It's probably a recurring nightmare. Some, uh, some of you might have experience of that, the same dream that kind of plagues you night after night. That's probably what's going on with Nebuchadnezzar. You read it in, in verse 1. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. <clears throat> I don't know if you've ever um, tried to help someone who has bad dreams. 
uh, maybe uh, it's appropriate for Mother's Day that maybe those of you who are mums here will have experience with this. Maybe you have all sorts of tactics up your sleeves. Um, turn the pillow over and maybe put it on the other side, get the cold side of the pillow, stick one foot out of the doona, I don't know, read a book, have a cup of chamomile uh, tea. Uh, perhaps Nebuchadnezzar tried some of those things, but nothing was working for him. Nothing worked for Nebuchadnezzar. He's so unsettled by his nightmare that he just can't sleep at all. Uh, and he does what any self-respecting ancient Near Eastern king would do. He calls all his advisors to him. He calls these great people, these wise men who live and he's appointed to positions. He calls them all in. Uh, and this dream is dominating him. He's, dom he's got such a hold on him and he wants answers. He wants to have it resolved. He can't rest. Uh, you also pick up that he doesn't quite trust his, his advisors. I don't know if you picked that up as we read through this great story as we went through. He really wants answers, but he doesn't want to be patronised by some smiling astrologer who will just make up some nice-sounding answer, explanation. They might consult their, uh, their books and tell him what his dream meant. So he comes out with this great strategy for weeding out uh, his advisers. Uh, it would be kind of like if a palm reader approached you randomly, they didn't know you, they'd never seen you, and they said, let me you know, tell your um, horoscope. Uh, it would sort of be like saying to them, well, friend, thanks for um, coming up and talking to me, but if you can tell me my exact birth date, where I was born, the minute of the hour that I was born at, uh, and who my parents are, then maybe I'll listen to you. you know, that's the kind of the strategy that Nebuchadnezzar has here. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he, he has that sort of approach with his astrologers, except he does it in his own kind of unique way, as only a military despot can do. Uh, he doesn't just say, uh, he says, so don't, don't just tell me what my dreams are. Um, or don't just try to tell me what my dream means. Because uh, if, he if he explains the dreams, his advisors can come up with all sorts of explanations. He says, don't just do that. You need to tell me what my dream was before I'm going to listen to your explanation of it. So down in verse 9, uh, I'll know you're not lying to me or telling me wicked and misleading things, he thinks. Oh, and, he, and, he, and he kind of throws in there, just in case you think I'm having you on, if you can't do it, I'll have you cut into pieces and I'll bulldoze your house. There you go. How's that for a little bit of um, motivation for these guys? It's such an unreasonable demand, right? It's so ridiculously unreasonable for Nebuchadnezzar to ask this. Uh, and if their lives on the line weren't on the line, it would be laughable, right? The astrologers know it. For all their pretense, for all their kind of claims to have special knowledge, uh, they know it's. They know they just can't. They can't do this. They don't have that kind of knowledge. No earth. In, in fact, they, they think they know that no one can do it. Verse ten: There is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. But, of course, that's not good enough for old Nebuchadnezzar. He, this dream is plaguing him. He's a man of... He's got all these people under him. He's a man of power, and he wants answers. And 
his top advisors, their inability to give him what he wants sends him into a rage. And you can, as, as, you read, as we read along there, you'll know, uh, you might have picked up the story. It sends Nebuchadnezzar into a rage and then he goes off uh, and, well, he sends his people off to destroy not only the guys who he was talking to, but all the wise men of Babylon, all the people in this group of these advisors, these astrologers, these enchanters, these, um, these people. It's, it's a very different kind of culture, right? But um, the, that's, what's, that's what's going on here. And the interesting thing is, right, that, that, though that group includes Daniel and his mates. We were introduced to Daniel last week. And we saw then that this story is set in the time of the exile, when God's people were taken away from Israel. They were put in exile by King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, it was a time of real tension. These people from Israel, they belonged to the kingdom of Babylon, the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. But at the same time, truer than that, deeper than that, what was really core about them was that they belonged to Yahweh, the covenant God, the one true and living God. And they walked, we, 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 noted, we saw this last week in chapter 1, they walked this fine line between, they didn't assimilate to the culture, they didn't just float around and do whatever the culture around them told them to, but they didn't circle the wagons and cut themselves off either. They kind of walked this fine line of engaging and being a part of the world around them, but at the same time, hold, knowing that who they really were, where their home was, wasn't Babylon. It was Jerusalem, it was Yahweh, it was God. They did all of that knowing that they belonged to God and that they did all of it knowing that despite everything going on around them, God was in control. God was in control. So here they are. Okay, take stock of the story so far. This group, these four young men, we reckon they're probably, you know, 20, under 20, uh, who've been taken off to Babylon in exile. Here they are. All of a sudden, you can see them uh, just relaxing at the end of a long day and they get this knock on the door, not just a knock, but a, you know, a huge loud bang at the door. And they go and open the door and there's the commander of the king's guard there uh, with his soldiers behind him, ready to kind of take them off. And the commander says, comes in and says, sorry guys, your time's up. <laughs> the king's ordered your execution. Um, and uh, in Babylon, um, in Babylon, two and a half thousand years ago, uh, if the king ordered an execution, it was just done. No questions asked. And how I wonder, if, as you're reading through this, um, it's interesting to ask, isn't it? How, how would you respond at that moment? Right? How would you, you get the knock on the door. You get uh, the guard there saying, your time's up, the king's ordered your execution. How would... I reckon I would be terrified. I'd be pretty confused. Maybe I'd start to hatch a plan to escape the city while no one was watching. You notice how Daniel responds in verse 14. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. That's interesting, isn't it? He, he kind of keeps his cool. He finds out what's going on. And then in, down in verse 16, uh, he goes to the king and he buys some more time. He goes back to his house and he calls his mates over and says, right, 
This is what he says. He calls his mates together and he says, okay, we're in a bit of a jam, guys. Uh, the king's ordered our execution. We need to tell him what his dream was. Not just what it means, but we need to say what it actually was. <laughs> what a ridiculous thing he was asking for us to do. So, here's the plan. We need to go into detail, into a full kind of psychological report on King Nebuchadnezzar. See what's troubling him, see what's going on. Uh, and find out what his deepest fears are, and then think how they might be showing up in his dreams, and then we might come up with a kind of plan for what his dream might have been. Okay, So we'll have a, give it an educated guess, and we'll go and try and get out of this. Of course, that's not what they do, right? They know that despite everything, God is in control. This is the big theme of Daniel, actually. They know that despite everything, God is in control. Uh, but they, that doesn't lead them to a kind of fatalistic attitude, just to kind of throw their hands up and not do anything. What it does for them is it gets them on their knees in prayer. The first response they have in verse 18, you can read it there. Daniel urges his friends to plead for mercy. From the God of heaven. Uh, it's interesting, isn't it, that the astrologers never thought of that? You get no sense of when the astrologers are asked to do this. Their instinct is not to plead for mercy from their gods. Uh, they never thought of that. They, they, might have been, they might have convinced themselves that their gods, their idols that they had were real. Uh, they didn't have any expectation. They didn't have any relationship with them. They didn't have any expectation that they would intervene. Um, when the pressure was on, they didn't. Their instinct wasn't to turn to their gods. But these exiles from the land of Judah, they know the God of heaven and when the pressure's on, they plead with him for mercy. And God reveals, we read it as we went through, God reveals this mystery to Daniel. I'm just going to read out, uh, so their, their first response is that's just, just interesting to think, isn't it? Uh, when the, the pressure was on for them, the first thing that they did was to, not to try and figure out their plan to hoodwink Nebuchadnezzar. Their first response was to get on their knees and plead with God for mercy. But what's even more interesting and I think really encouraging for us uh, from Daniel is that, that they don't only do that, uh, the next thing that they do is not once, he, you know, I think perhaps what I would do is once, I'd, once God had revealed to me the dream, if I was Daniel, uh, I'd be out the door in a flash, right? I'd go straight to Nebuchadnezzar and tell him exactly what was going on. And perhaps, um, you know, I could even make it sound like it was me who, who kind of came up with it because of my great power. Uh, Daniel doesn't do that. You see what he does there in verse, from verse 20 onwards? After having this revealed to him, Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. Just notice who's doing everything in this prayer. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things and knows what lies in darkness. 
and light dwells with him. Daniel prays, I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. It's incredible, isn't it, how calm Daniel is through this whole thing. How calm he is. I mean, not only does he respond with kind of wisdom and tact, it says, to the commander, he, he says the first thing he does is pray, uh, and he also goes to sleep. That's kind of what was, you, know, you pick that up there. He, he, he prays to God and goes to sleep. And in his dream, God reveals Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Uh, and you see in this prayer what lies behind that. Why is it that Daniel can be so calm in the face of this? It's all in that prayer that we had read out. It isn't because he's smarter or he has a better kind of technique. Uh, it's because he knows the reality of this God. He knows the true God who made all things, who set apart a people for himself so that they might bring his blessing to the world. That's why his instinct is to pray. And when his prayer is answered, that's why his next instinct is to praise God and thank him. And that's also why when he goes to the king uh, and Nebuchadnezzar asks him later on, he says, can you tell me what I saw and what it means? That's also why Daniel gives this kind of surprising answer. If you pick that up as we read through in verse 27, um, uh, where are we? Uh, The king asked Daniel, are you able to tell me what I saw and interpret it? Daniel replies, um, maybe not what what you or I would say. We'd say, yes, O king, this is what the dream, what you dreamed, and this is what it means. No, the first thing he says was, no. No wise man or enchanter or magician or diviner can tell you what this means. <clears throat> and you get, you can kind of feel at this point, I reckon if Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, you can kind of sense Nebuchadnezzar's rage building, right? This guy, this upstart exile has come in claiming uh, to be able to reveal his dream for him, interpret it, and he gets this. Can you reveal it to me? Daniel says, no, no wise man can do that. But Daniel goes on. He he kind of says to Nebuchadnezzar, what you've asked for is unreasonable. No human can do it. You know that. Your gods can't reveal it. They're no gods at all. But in verse 28, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. This dream is from him. And he gave it to you to show you what's coming in the future. And what's more down in verse 30, God's shown me this, not because I'm more special than anyone else, not because of anything like that, because I have greater wisdom. It's not about me. He praises God. That's why he can direct everything to God. He prays, he praises God. And then, well, he kind of proclaims to um, Nebuchadnezzar what the dream was all about. Apologies for the alliteration. I mean, I kind of get annoyed when preachers do that, but I couldn't help myself. Um, He proclaims the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. Um, We we heard it read out. We're not going to go. There's a picture up on the screen there. This huge, impressive statue of gold 
uh, and bronze and iron and silver with the, the feet have clay mixed into it. And then this, this rock comes uh, that's not cut by... The, clearly the statue is made by human hands, but this rock is different. It's not cut out by human hands. It comes and strikes the feet of iron and clay, smashes the whole structure. It doesn't just leave it as rubble. Do you notice that as you read through? It grinds it to dust uh, so that there's nothing left of it. It's like the chaff. It just gets blown away. This huge, impressive statue ends up as just dust that's blown away. It grinds it to dust. And while this statue was so impressive, uh, it gets ground to nothing and blown away. This little stone, not cut out by human hands, uh, it grows and grows. And the dream in the dream, it ends up filling the whole earth. And you can kind of see, can't you, as Daniel's telling this dream to the king, I can kind of imagine that Nebuchadnezzar's draw, jaw is dropping at this point. He's thinking... How on earth do you know this? He, Daniel's telling him the dream with all the details. You know, there's so much detail in there that only Nebuchadnezzar could know. Um, his jaw drops at, at everything. But Daniel doesn't just proclaim the dream to the king. Uh, he tells him what it means. Uh, and it starts out pretty well for Nebuchadnezzar, right? Daniel says, you, Nebuchadnezzar, are the king of kings. Uh, you're the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar literally was king of kings. He had all these sort of kingdoms underneath him that he'd taken control of and they were paying uh, tribute to him. He's the head of gold. But notice how Daniel says this ultimately wasn't because of his own power or cunning. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. Uh, It's all from God. It's not because of Nebuchadnezzar's own... Um, power or his from himself. He goes on um, he, uh, to explain the other kind of medals. They represent different kingdoms that are going to come after Daniel. Um, there's heaps of debate over what they actually represent. Uh, we're not actually going to go into much of that today. Um, you can follow it up for yourself if you're really interested to get into it. But traditionally, they've been identified as the four kingdoms that sort of came including Babylon. Babylon, then there was the Medo-Persian Empire, then Greece, and then the Roman Empire. Um, but that's not the main point of the dream, to kind of spend a lot of focus on trying to identify those kingdoms. Um, the main point comes down in verse 44, if you keep reading. This is what the dream is really all about. In the time of those kings... The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. All these human kingdoms seem so impressive. They each have their own character, right? They, you know, gold, bronze, silver iron, they each have their own character, but you notice they're all part of the same statue, this statue that represents human power and pride, human kingdoms set up, the same attempt to raise ourselves up to gain power, and they all have the same fate. They all crumble when they're struck by this stone this kingdom of God that can never be destroyed and that fills the whole earth. 
All right. Well, there's lots of detail in there, as I said. But no, it's no wonder Nebuchadnezzar responds like he does, isn't it? He, not only does Daniel tell him what his dream is, he interprets it, he gives this incredible interpretation and um, uh, opens Dan- uh, Nebuchadnezzar's eyes to the reality of God's eternal, unstoppable kingdom that will crush every other kingdom. Uh, and you get this really striking scene at the end, right? Right at the end of the, of the um, chapter where you get uh, the most powerful person alive. Right? Think, uh, uh, who's the most powerful person? Obviously, you know, you think of the President of the United States or uh, maybe for you it's someone else. Um, just think of that. You know, the mo- but uh, Nebuchadnezzar, um, without the restraints of... Uh, democratic government has even more power than that. The most powerful person alive, falling on the ground, <laughs> bowing down, paying homage to this young nobody from a backwater kingdom, uh, this nobody who happens to know the great somebody. Uh, uh, but Daniel, of course, is not a nobody for long. Nebuchadnezzar lavishes him with honour, makes him his prime minister. And all. And at Daniel's request, we read that his three friends are put there as well. Okay, well, friends, God gave this... It's interesting, isn't it? God gave this foreign king. Nebuchadnezzar had mercilessly um, uh, taken over the kingdom of Israel, or of Judah at that time. He had defeated God's people. He carried them into exile. Uh, he gave this king an incredible insight into his great plans for the whole world. Nebuchadnezzar was part of this great statue of human pride and power. Uh, He was at the top of it. He was the head of gold. Maybe as we're reading through, you kind of might have, if you know the Bible's story, might have had some, um, some memories sort of tripped for you from an earlier story in Genesis, the story of the Tower of Babel. It's no, it's no coincidence, actually, that that is, and Babylon are the same kind of name, this Tower of Babel, humans trying to make a name for themselves, setting them up, setting themselves up to build their own empires uh, and forgetting about the reality of the one true God who reigns over all. The dream he had was God's message to Nebuchadnezzar that God does, in fact, reign over all. Would have been such a comfort for the exiles to read this. Um, See, friends, this, this, uh, this story of this little rock that grows to the whole earth and lasts forever and fills the earth. And it was just 500 years after this story is set. Uh, Babylon had come and gone. What seemed so powerful, so all-encompassing, that was just a, a memory of history. Uh, the, the kingdom of the Medes and Persians had gone. The power of Greece was gone. The superpower of the day was Rome. And in what seems like an unimpressive situation, a little rock compared to a great statue, uh, A young girl, another nobody, gets a visit from an angel of light, a messenger from God. 
Gabriel announces to Mary about the baby she's going to have, uh, she's going to give birth to in Luke 1. He says this of Jesus, He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Fast forward another 30 years, and Jesus comes proclaiming, you read this in Mark 1, proclaiming the good news of God. He says, The time has come, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The good news of God's kingdom came in Jesus, but as you read the kind of, if you get to know Jesus, you read the stories of what he did and what he said, instead of the way of, you know, the statue kind of represents one way of setting up a kingdom. It represents the way of dominating everyone else, of killing off your enemies. Jesus establishes his kingdom in a totally unexpected way. Instead of killing his enemies, he dies for them to free them and bring them forgiveness. In his own death and resurrection, he defeats his great enemies, sin and death and even the devil, and his kingdom is real now. But what Daniel saw in the future as this one coming event, this stone coming, this kingdom of God, what Daniel saw as kind of one event, Jesus reveals as really he kind of splits into two. Um, He came as God's great king, but in God's plan so that people from every nation could come into his kingdom. Uh, He sets up God's kingdom, but God's kingdom has not yet come in all its fullness. Jesus' kingdom is a now and a not yet kingdom. Uh, It is real, it's here, it's now. His resurrection establishes that fact. Uh, And Jesus reigns now. And he calls all people into his good and life-giving rule and he freely offers it to them. But there will come a day when the stone does become a great mountain that covers the earth. And our, our human kingdoms aren't really improving, are they? From two and a half thousand years ago. We're still building the statue. Uh, but God's kingdom has come in Jesus and will be fully realised in the new creation that he's bringing in when he returns to make all things new. This would have been such an encouragement to the first readers who were living in exile to to get this insight into the big picture of God's plans for the whole world and to know that even in exile, despite all appearances, God was still in control. And friends, it's the same for us. Jesus gives us these words from Luke 12. He says, Fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. There's so much in the way of how this can apply to us. Um, for uh, I, I just wanted to quickly mention three, a couple of different things. Um, on a global scale, um, it's tempting, isn't it, to become overwhelmed by the power of um, governments and forces and things out in the world. Daniel 2, the whole story of the Bible, the kingdom of Jesus, is a great reminder that it is God's kingdom that will last. No kingdom will stand up to it. Every kingdom will fall before it. Uh, but it's not just on a global level, is it? It's, it's on a more personal level that this can really have a deep impact on us and shape us as we keep this reality of God's kingdom 
front and centre for us. Um, I, uh, sort of thinking through, this, through it this week, I realised how far I've got to go, how little I live in, the line, in line with this incredible reality. Um, even sort of thinking through this passage, preparing a sermon on it, and finding myself getting drained or overwhelmed by other things. Um, I, this is totally off script, but when I got here this morning, Meredith, what did you say? God is good. He's the same God who was there. Daniel's God is the same God. And that was a very timely word for me, so thanks for that. But it, it's true, isn't it? Um, the, having this reality of God's indestructible kingdom that is here now in Jesus and will one day be perfect and complete and fill the whole earth, shapes and frames our whole lives and gives us the confidence to hear this word from Jesus. Fear not, little flock. For it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. If you are trusting in Christ, that is true for you. If you are not, it can be true for you. Let's pray. Father, we pray uh, as we reflect on the reality of your kingdom that is here in Christ. Thank you that we know that that's true in his death and resurrection. Thank you, Father, though, that we also look forward to the day when... uh, Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, we we pray that we might live more and more in line with that reality. Give us uh, the confidence and calmness that Daniel had when he kind of knew that you were in control and you had your plan working out. We pray that for ourselves. Lord, we pray that we might... uh, Please keep us from despair... uh, in any circumstance in our lives, either kind of big picture, global things going on, or even in our own lives, things that just seem out of control. Lord, may we keep always in our minds the reality of your kingdom, the certain hope that we have of it, and we do pray that it might be a great encouragement for us, Uh, particularly we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.